Welcome to the Harvard Center for International Development Speaker Series podcast. My name is Aileen, and I'm a graduate student at Harvard University and the CID Student Ambassador. This week, we are joined by Elaine Welgy, Senior Advisor at the International Monetary Fund, responsible for strategy, innovation, and partnerships. I'm speaking with Elaine after his appearance at the Harvard Kennedy School on November 18th, where he talked how technologies can benefit the poor, result in greater inclusivity, and drive greater equity. Thank you for the opportunity, Elaine. We're excited to have you here. Thank you. Very happy to be here. So, in your blog post, "Digital Disrupting Development: How Can Technology Be a Force for Inclusion?" you offer some initial thoughts that require further attention and work. One is that entrepreneurs need to develop solutions that are inclusive by design, not by default. Could you please elaborate more on that? Sure, happy to do that. And let me just say that I'm here today not in my official capacity as a Staff member at the IMF, but really, this is the work that I've been doing for decades, both with Google at the World Bank, with the Agricon Foundation.、Um, and I guess one of the things I've learned is that technology, whether it's the mobile phone, whether it's electricity, whether it's AI today, machine learning, is not going to include people by default or even by accident. It's not going to include them in ways that are going to improve their quality of life by accident or by default. And so my my thesis really is that whether it's AI or ML today, for example, or even the blockchain, unless the deployers of the technology are thinking about and are deliberate about how is this going to affect the lives of people, and in my case, I'm interested in the underserved or the poor. We should not assume that it'll include them. It will likely exclude them. So whether it's robotics in the workplace or automation、um, in various fields that could be later labor displacing, what we're really looking at is how can they be labor augmenting. That takes thought, that takes planning, and that takes design. You've also mentioned that impact investors need to unlock capital, incubate, and accelerate new business models. And what important features do these new business models need to include? So I think when you think about any kind of an enterprise that is designed to serve the poor or to serve those that are often constrained from being the payers, it sometimes it's not that they're unable to pay. In fact, it's often very useful to have a customer so you have the signal from the market as to whether the good or the service is valued. But they may not be able to pay the full amount of the service, or it may be that you can only reach the customers. Up until a certain point, that they're able to pay. But if it's a public good, whether it's water, it's education, it's healthcare, you may not reach those that are the most needy, the most vulnerable. So the business model really has to think about who pays. In some instances, it's directly the customer, the the full cost of the service. But in other instances, it can be complemented, supplemented, subsidized by another group that's able to pay more by the government itself. Some of the organizations that I've seen, for example. Quill.org has developed a a tool to improve student writing through using AI and machine learning. The payers for the service are not the students nor the teachers that are served. It's the school districts. It is the college board who also have incentives for value-added services. But they've designed the business model in a way that's not going to constrain any potential user from having access to the service. What barriers do you think are most important in constraining successful models of digital inclusion from scaling up within and across countries? 
Well, often what you find is that the conditions in which you embed the business model, the technology, uh, the service are very different. And so if you think, for example, of digital money in East Africa, in, in Kenya, for example, there was something called M-Pesa, which it took about two decades for other countries in the world to be able to innovate around and adapt. In some senses, what M-Pesa proved more than a decade ago, the conditions were different in that how the tool, how the service, how the technology was regulated and seen by the government had everything to do with its ability to scale and to spread. And so in Kenya, I think they took a very wise decision not to regulate phone payments, which originally were just airtime credits, which eventually became a currency, not to regulate that as if they were regulating a financial institution or a bank, but to let that innovation organically develop, grow, and scale. And then when they realized this is something that needs to be regulated, then they did so in a kind of smart policy way, as opposed to constraining the innovation from the very beginning because it looked like something that maybe a bank should do. And so countries that looked at digital payments as subject to bank regulation did not have the same success as those that were more kind of agile and more flexible in their approach. You've also mentioned that entrepreneurs and innovators within the public sector must design applications to meet the unique needs of the poor and overcome a range of constraints to reach scale. And we know in the developing world there are a lot of problems that are interconnected. And how do entrepreneurs find the right entry point in the market and the right enabling actors? And how can they overcome these barriers to scale? Well, I think the right entry point is what's the pain point, right? What is the issue that is irking the user? What is the issue that is preventing a user, a citizen, a person from being able to access a service or a good? Sometimes it's the user themselves that are best equipped to answer that question. Sometimes the user is not in a perspective to solve the problem, but they can certainly articulate the problem and explain what the pain point is. And so you start with a problem, not a solution. Often we're, you know, we're kind of answers looking for questions or hammers looking for nails. But in a situation where if you take, for example, pest control in India, where you have 30 to 40 percent crop loss due to crop pests. And so you think about the food loss, you think about the cost to the farmer, you think about the cost to the supply chain of food, extremely high. And so the entry point was how do we reduce crop loss by farmers? And a part of what we know happens is that farmers are either using the wrong pesticides or at the right time, too much, too little, etc. How do we identify the disease on a plant in a way that improves the efficiency and the effectiveness and the cost effectiveness of using a fertilizer? And so the innovation was, what if we could identify a crop disease on a plant in the way that we can identify a face on our phone? The same sort of technology that can identify an image and match it to a database and says, this looks like this, therefore it might be X, the way that it might identify your brother, your sister, or your friend, you can look at an image of a disease on a leaf and say, this might be whatever it is. And so that's an example of a, of a technology that started with a major problem, not just in India, but around the world. It was deployed in a few states in India, and it was a combination of 
the algorithm and the technology stack that could identify through computer vision what is an object with a very, very large database of imagery around crop diseases and what they look like in a way that could then identify the disease and tell the farmer quickly on their phone or through an extension agent what's likely to be the problem and what they should do about it led to less use of pesticides and less crop loss. Yeah, thank you. That is a really powerful example. In your today's presentation, you offered a list of purpose-driven and tech-enabled solutions leveraging AI, ML, data analytics, and distributed ledger technology to reduce social economic exclusion. And how can stakeholders learn from these models you provided? And what do you want people to get most from these models? Yeah, you know, just to repeat a few of the things that I think I've been saying, one is that each of these entrepreneurs were deliberate, they were purpose first, they were impact first in terms of what they were trying to achieve, and then decided what technology and how technology could be used to solve a problem. So they weren't saying, I've got this amazing technology, let me go look for a problem. They said, here's a problem that to be solved at scale and to reach the maximum number of people can be speedened up or could be sort of accelerated by the use of an exponential technology, whether it's AI, ML, blockchain, Internet of Things, etc. And so the first thing I would say is that they were purpose-driven and they were inclusive by design. The second thing I think is that they all recognized that the model that they were building had fallen marginal costs over time. So, you know, much like software rather than building a factory, you know, every time you build an additional room or you buy additional machine, the, the capital cost of that is very high. Whereas if you build uh, an algorithm or a stack, having additional users benefit from what you've built, the marginal cost can fall over time. It can be very small. So the ability to, to reach more students, if you develop a technology that helps students improve writing through AI, whether there's 10,000 students or 11,000 students or 100,000 students, the cost of increase is much smaller than if you were buying hardware. And so they had business models that allowed them to scale quickly based on um, a piece of technology or a stack that they built that could be accessed by a lot more people at very little cost. The third thing that I think they did is they developed payer models or business models where the ability to access the tool, the product, or, or the service by the most marginal segments of the population or, or the underserved was not constrained by their ability to pay. So in some instances they paid, some, some instances they were able to, to pay the full amount. In some instances the business model was designed in a way where the user of the service is not actually paying, but it's then paid for by either the public sector or by some sort of cross-subsidization, etc., so they came up with designs that were inclusive through products and services that had falling marginal costs over time, and they had business or delivery models that by design did not exclude the most underserved. So in the nonprofit sector, many well-designed and well-intentioned programs are underfunded and overly regulated. Therefore, many organizations cannot achieve their full potential. How can nonprofit organizations imagine movement building outside the traditional model to better drive social changes and improve equity? 
So I would say that many of the problems that we face in the developing world and in many, many places that plague the underserved is what I would call complex problems rather than complicated problems. And one, one way to think about the difference is when you build a bridge, it is a very complicated technology challenge. It requires engineers, or it requires designers, it requires a very sophisticated technical solution. But anywhere you are, if you're an engineer who's built a bridge, you can build a different kind of a bridge. That's a complicated problem that can be solved by a technical solution. A complex problem is something where even being able to pin down the problem is difficult because it'll change. Where the kind of the factors and the constituent elements which grow the problem, change the problem, are rapidly shifting. So if you think about the difference between a bridge and traffic, every time you introduce an intervention, all the players in the system shift. You could move a traffic light, you could move a stop sign, you could introduce a new role, but the system adapts and, and shifts, and no one technical answer is likely to solve the problem. So I sort of say it's the difference between checkers and 3D chess. So I would argue that like education reform is an example of a systems problem that requires a systems solution. It's not just about saying, how do we improve the curriculum of the classroom or how do we improve the test scores? Sometimes that involves incentives for teachers. Sometimes it, it involves the motivations of the parents in the area. Sometimes it involves the students' access to certain technologies to be able to do their work and their homework. Sometimes it involves, quite unintuitively, whether there's toilets outside the school. We have learned that for adolescent girls in many parts of Asia and Africa, when they start to menstruate, unless there's a safe, clean toilet near the school, for reasons of safety and security, they stop going to school. Nobody would imagine that a latrine would have an impact on girls' education. But these are complex problems, not just complicated problems, and they require different actors in an ecosystem to work together and to make the right handoffs to be able to develop a solution which is sustainable, anchored, and appropriate, fit for purpose in that area, which in itself may change over time. So it requires rapid iteration, learning, and constant dialogue between those actors. Yeah, what you were saying actually leads to my next question, which is what can different parts of the ecosystem collectively do to unplug constraints and accelerate models that work? And why is this not happening already? It's not happening already because it's really hard and it's complicated and it requires not just knowing who the different actors in the ecosystem are, but also getting them around a table or around a conversation to be able to say, we collectively want to solve the problem. And sometimes their incentives aren't aligned, right? So if you're going to introduce a technology you know, in the civil service, which is going to make the prediction and the measurement of childhood stunting more efficient, but it's now going to affect a large member of you know, community health workers that may be threatened by the introduction of the technology because they feel like now they won't have a job, then you actually now have counter incentives in the system. But if you know you have those community health workers, there are, there are ways to say, we're not going to use the technology to displace you, but to augment the way you can do your job so that you're more effective and you're more efficient. So sometimes it's a matter of incentives not aligning. 
But more often than not, it's that, you know, everybody does what they do well, but unless they connect with another actor, sometimes that's not going to make as much of a difference. So if you think about, you know, a technology you know, company, for example, you know, we've, 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 we've talked about Skill Lab as an example in the talk that I gave this morning, which is a AI-powered tool to match immigrant workers and low-skilled workers that often have capabilities that are not easily captured in the CV or in a cover letter and matching their skills to opportunities in the market and putting them in front of, of an employer in an effective way. Their challenge often is not just capital or it's not just you know access to more technology, but it's, but it's access to who are the government decision makers in an ecosystem that can that can enable, accelerate, and unpack the power of their technology in a way that can help a lot more people. They may not have the expertise in how to work with the right you know, policymakers in the government. They may not even know who they are. You know, I was once, um, you know, so the founder described sort of the challenge once is that I feel like a mouse dancing with an elephant. I mean, it's, you know, you can get, you can get trampled upon very, very quickly. So when we start assembling the right folks at the table to solve a problem, often what it requires is an organization that plays a value-added intermediary role. You could call them a systems orchestrator, a bridge builder, a translator. Often it's institutions that play roles between actors in the ecosystem to find a solution. If you think about the Global Fund, if you think about Gavi in the healthcare sector, it took philanthropy, civil society to play a powerful role, to bring the right folks at the table, and often to be willing to put resources on the table to increase the chances of success of an ecosystem working together. You've also mentioned that in most cases, it was engagement with the government, policymakers, investors, and even legacy systems that were most difficult to address. And how should small or growing organizations develop these networks and create strong alliances with different stakeholders? And how do they identify the right partners? So that's probably the most difficult question you've asked because it's a, it's a bunch of questions, I think, looped into one. I think let me just sort of take them one at a time. Based on the discussions that I've had with entrepreneurs working on issues of health and education and livelihoods and food systems and water management, what I found is that the scale of their solutions was not commensurate with the size of the problem. So they had very, very powerful solutions. They were often, they were viable commercially, economically, they were reaching many people, but when you look at a problem where you can reach a million people, but the problem affects a hundred million people, the question is how do you get to scale, whether it's by organic growth of an organization or a business model being replicated and adapted or some other way in terms of advocacy communications as to how this works so that others might be able to adapt, adopt and replicate or or you know kind of learn from that example. What we found is that the constraints they faced were the typology of, of the constraints were common. So we heard about things like regulatory, business processes, government policies that were not enabling, for one. We heard about the lack of flexible finance for working capital to test, iterate, and scale solutions at work. We heard about, very often, access to enabling infrastructure, broadband, 
energy, skills. We heard about issues of data, data sharing, data portability, data interoperability, the need for privacy standards. We heard about the importance of there being rigorous evidence to back that the solutions were working in ways that could then be influential with respect to some of the conversations they would have with government or you know, other funders, investors. And then we heard about advocacy, communications, and media as a tool to, to accelerate awareness and almost helping you to build a movement around a solution. And one of the things I found is that all of these constraints, so many of them, not all of them, but so many of them implicated government, policymakers, multilateral institutions, bilateral institutions, in other words, donors, funders, policymakers, and, and government were represented in so many of these boxes. Because when you're delivering a public good where the market alone is not going to allow you to reach the most um, underserved user, you need to figure out how to work with the public sector. And so we started to look at, could we create a sandbox where the innovation or the lab is not the technology itself. There's lots of examples of ed tech, health tech, ag tech, but the the innovation is testing it with a with a public actor and other right actors in the ecosystem to test how would you take this innovation to scale in a place with a set of actors. Great, thank you. And I know that many innovators are really passionate about exploring the nature of the developing world's intractable problems and implementing entrepreneurial and humanitarian solutions. Uh, we have already talked about some challenges that it may face, but then what are some opportunities for these entrepreneurs and innovators when they're responding to these unsolved problems? Well, there's no shortage of problems. And I would say that generally... Starting with a problem that means something to you, that you know something about it, that you are the user that's affected by this, is often a good way to start. When I think about, you know, some of my friends that have had difficulties, um, you know, dealing with rare illnesses that affect their children, they are the parent that is passionate and most concerned about an issue when they develop an entrepreneurial approach to solving that. That's often much more powerful than somebody who you know, hears about the problem in some abstract way. So start with a problem that matters to you. What I find is, is that many of the problems in the developing world where we try to find a solution from the global north for the global south, making a ton of assumptions about how it's going to work and why it's going to work, it's not surprising that many of the reasons why it does not work were predictable in retrospect had we spoken to the end users or we worked on a problem where we were the end user. So one is start with a problem that matters to you and that works. Um, the second thing that I would say is think early about the business model that's, that's going to get this to sustainability in a financial sense. It does not always mean that there has to be a payer, uh, the end user, which is going to pay the full cost of the service, but somebody has to. So what is your predictable revenue stream that allows you to achieve uh, financial sustainability and viability? Another thing I would say is who are the different partners or actors in an ecosystem that are going to help to accelerate 
market share, if you like? How are you going to be able to reach more people more quickly, particularly if you're working on a problem, vaccines is an example, where every day, every month matters in terms of lives you can save. What is your pathway to scaling up? And then in the case of a public good, what is your posture and how are you equipped and ready to deal with government? And what does that interface look like? How do you work with a policymaker? And I guess the last thing I would say is that not every organization has the resources and the bandwidth to be able to do all these things well. And that's where on really complex challenges, I think sometimes we need intermediaries in a system that help to facilitate the conversation, sometimes be a translator, a facilitator, an interpreter vis-a-vis different actors in an ecosystem. Thank you very much, Aline. And thanks again to Aline for taking the time to talk with us. You can learn more about the Center for International Development and CID's research and upcoming events at cid.harvard.edu. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you back soon.